Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Today's investors expect more than a transaction. They want a relationship. Show how your firm merges EQ and IQ with Orion's B520, a new shareable assessment developed by Dr. Daniel Crosby that provides you with emotional and attitudinal insights into clients to facilitate more meaningful investing conversations from day one. Get started today at orion.com forward slash B520. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I have a very special guest with me. We met up for the first time in person at the Schwab Impact Conference after following each other online for some time. I'm joined today by Rachel J. Robichaudi. She is the founder and CEO of Adesina Social Capital, an investment and financial activism firm that serves as a critical bridge between financial markets and social justice movements. Her passion for social justice is rooted in her background as a black queer woman and growing up in a community that struggled for safety and security within a rural town that was largely segregated. Rachel is a fierce advocate for social justice in the financial industry and is regularly featured in the media as a leader in the field for integrating issues of racial, gender, economic, and climate justice into investment portfolios. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Daniel. I'm so glad to be here and and to be with your great listener. Today. Yeah, no, it's wonderful to wonderful to have you. Long overdue. So I, I want to start with something that you mentioned in the bio. You know, even if you had not mentioned it in the bio, <laughs> when I was doing my due diligence on you and your firm, I'm like, nobody, nobody starts a business like this without like a real heart led mission without a real passion for the work and without a real personal investment in the work. So I'm curious about sort of your your origin story and, and how you got led to this work. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to share that with you. I think it's a story that we don't hear many stories like it in finance. But I think that's important to start hearing different stories than we've traditionally heard. And so uh, as you said, racial, gender, economic, and climate justice are what we focus on at Adesina. And that isn't by accident. That's what matters to me personally. It's also what matters to the most marginalized groups we found in society. And it wasn't a big surprise that those came together. But the way that they came together um, is in a way that starts when I was a kid. I grew up in Oroville, which if you've heard about Oroville at all, it's a small rural town. The only thing it really has of note is a giant dam. It's actually the tallest dam in the United States. Um, and there is a significant Black population there. The Black population came up from the South during the Great Migration. That's when my grandparents came up. And they came very specifically to help build the dam. And, and even more so, it was because they were taking jobs that the white people wouldn't take who were in town. And they were the most high-risk jobs building the dam. So that the, you know, the black community came up, lived on the southwest side of town. We were called the south side. And as I was growing up in the 80s, very segregated. There were definitely parts of town we weren't allowed to go to. And this was during like the war on drugs. There were, we were not only in our community 
it felt very targeted by the local police. It was something that really impacted my life personally. So we had three different family members, close family members that were taken from us, three men who were killed by police when I was growing up. And well, actually one of them was during my adult life. And then so many of the men in our community very specifically were taken from us through mass incarceration. And what that meant is that we are these families, black families led primarily by women and the jobs, because it's a very conservative kind of area, the jobs mostly go to men. So we were very poor, directly related to being families led by women, which is directly related to some racial injustice and mass incarceration. So these these issues of, you know, it's homeless multiple times, of like economic injustice, racial and gender injustice, they were very present for me and were just around my whole life growing up. And it made a lot of sense that I would go into building a wealth management firm that focused on doing what we could to help people financially um, make good decisions while at the same time investing in a way that tried to address racial, gender, economic justice issues. Something major happened in the 2010s. Couple things. In the financial industry, we started to turn into um, from socially responsible to ESG investing. And much to the dismay of me and our clients, we suddenly were like, wait, why are the wrong issues are being focused on? And wait a minute, now we have oil companies and portfolios, for example. So that was happening in our world, uh, in the investment world. But at the very same time, the place where I had grown up was having extreme weather. So we had had these multiple years of a historic mega drought followed by these years full of atmospheric rivers. In 2016, it was like the largest year of the mega drought, worst. And then the 2017, we had just like terrible storms and snow melt. So the dam sadly started to collapse. And it actually made international news when the dam started to collapse. You can imagine my surprise. I was very worried about my family. You know, turned on the news. When we're looking at it, what I and my community saw is the same thing that the residents of the Ninth Ward saw after Hurricane Katrina, which is that we had been redlined into living into the residential in the residential area that would be most likely to flood. And that's really major because the Black folks came up there to take those highest risk jobs, often gave their life to build a dam in a town where we were targeted racially, where we were impoverished. And now where we would be the first to be washed away. And it's always these most marginalized communities that are sounding the alarm bells for what doesn't work about society. And I felt very clearly like, oh, it's not just that racial, gender, and economic justice are intertwined. It's climate justice as well. You cannot hold these pieces apart. It's going to be these same marginalized communities who are like the canaries in the mine about this. And so we really need to be listening them, listening to them um, because we're always going to keep localizing our societal problems in one specific set of folks. So that was the year that we actually started building Adathena Social Capital, which was a different way of addressing these kinds of very large systemic issues of racial, gender, economic, and climate injustice using um, our collective resources and public markets. So that's kind of how all of that came together. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful explanation. You know, if you would, you you started to touch on it, but for those who are unfamiliar with redlining, can you talk a little bit more about what redlining is? And I think some of the areas of focus for Adesina are immediately apparent to folks, how they would help marginalize people. And then others like climate 
I think are maybe are maybe less obvious. And you started to touch on it, but could could you touch a little more on why something like climate change, which I think most people would would or, or many people would assume would impact people uh, of all stripes, maybe impacts the the most marginalized the most. Yeah, absolutely. So if people aren't familiar with it, redlining is something that happened in communities all across the United States. Um, we have federal agencies that help to, uh, like Fannie Mae, you know, uh, Freddie Mac, that help to ensure that mortgages are being made and encourage home ownership. And those federal agencies and banks together put rules um, in place that either made loans completely unavailable or were specifically um, some of the least attractive, least beneficial for those communities, um, those types of home loans available to people. It, it accomplished a couple of things. One, it decreased rates of home ownership, which is where most Americans store the vast majority of their wealth. Um, but secondarily, what it did was it only allowed for home ownership and any of like the government supportive programs for that in very particular areas that were generally considered the least attractive areas to live. And so what it did was it kind of guaranteed a market for the least attractive places to live. And it ghettoized, it like pulled together all of the black populations or and other populations that were not seen as the ones that you wanted in your particular neighborhood. And kind of at an institutional government-wide level, it ensured that you had segregation uh, so that you could have what many people thought of as like nice white neighborhoods separated from the poor black neighborhoods usually. So that's that's what I'm talking about when I say redlining. When I'm when I'm thinking about the communities that are redlined into living into flood zones, and by the way, it's not just the flood zones, but many other places that are like less attractive. What I mean is that those who are most impacted by issues of racial, gender, economic injustice, they are our kind of discard population. They're the population that takes all the economic hits and the safety hits, right? And these are the populations that you're going to put into the less attractive neighborhoods. And often those neighborhoods are less attractive because they have high risk of flooding and sea level rise and wildfire risk. And I, what I'm hoping to convey is that if we're going to solve these large societal problems, I think we're all starting to get the message, COVID helps with this, that we're deeply interconnected as a human race. If we're going to solve the deepest problems of the human race, we're actually going to look at, we need going to look at where we're ailing the most. And it's in these marginalized communities where overlapping disadvantages come together um, and communities like mine, where I grew up. So I built a whole firm and an investment strategy specifically around pulling in the wisdom of those who are closest to the problems, but farthest from the power, bringing that into an investment process. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I want you, you, you gave me permission to go off script and I'm, I'm taking permission and we're, we're doing it because- Let's do it. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I really appreciate you, you sharing your story with us, especially the more, you know, this a story of loss and the more intimate parts of that story it's obvious to me why you wanted to get involved in social justice. I think what's what I would love to know more about is there's many ways you could have approached that. You could have been an attorney. You could have been an artist. You could have been a community art organizer. I mean, you could have been a million things, right? And, and sort of spoken out against the injustices that you saw. Why did you feel that finance was the the 
the best tool at your disposal to to make the world uh, to make the kind of changes you want to see in the world? Oh, I'm really grateful you asked that question. I thought about being an attorney. In certain ways, I am and always will be an artist. And I grew up and, you know, was lighter skinned than the rest of my family and had more white appearing features. White people interacted with me uh, differently than the rest of my family. I had more advantages and I needed to go into an industry where I could make enough money to support my family. And so helping people make financial decisions seemed like a great idea. Um, I graduated at the age of 15 and went to college. And that's kind of what I've, this has been my career the whole time. I've been in the industry since 99. So there is definitely like, oh, I had an aptitude for this for sure. There's also a very practical element, which is that we have these big societal problems. These are collective level problems. And what they're going to take is our collective resources to address them and make large systemic impact. And all of our collective resources, I shouldn't say all, the overwhelming majority of our collective resources are bundled up into the public markets. It's where our retirement savings are, right? It's where our long-term investments are. And I know from being a long-time values-aligned investor what's possible when investors come together in solidarity to work on certain issues. I just felt like we weren't working on the right issue in the right way. And so it felt important to me. We're in a capitalist economy and that kind of economy, wealth is power. If all the wealth is in public markets. That's exactly where I was going to be going in order to uh, try to bring that collective wealth together in order to bring power together to address our collective problem. And we've had some really tremendous results and some huge impact, especially for a firm that, you know, considered on the newer end of asset managers. Yeah. Yeah, I'm you know I'm familiar with a a, a host of other ESG type pro providers of, of asset management, but I think you're really doing some unique and, and special things, and I want to talk about those those differences right now. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing that I'm sitting here taking notes, and one of the things that I that I noted that I think is really going to stick with me from our conversation is that those with the most to say, right? Those who uh, have this sort of early early warning sign into these societal problems, as you've made the point, a lot of times have the least power and the least voice. So one of the things that that you're doing, I forget, you you put it very beautifully, but it was something like people who are closest to the problem, you know, people who are the closest to problem, we're going to help you uh, get the kind of data that you need. One interesting differentiator, uh, differentiator about Adesina is that your data is sourced in part from community sources directly from the people that are most impacted by the things that you're fighting for. So could you speak to how you get this data, how it differs from more traditional data sources and and how it augments your investment process? Absolutely. And um, to put it really simply, we go to the communities that are most impacted by issues of racial, gender, economic, and climate justice, and we ask them how investors can advance their goal. So I'll give you a really quick example. And I'll kind of maybe we'll stay with this example throughout because it'll help highlight a lot of different points. But the Me Too movement really, you know, blew up in 2017 and the investment world really felt like they needed to respond. There was a lot of client demand for investments that addressed the Me Too issue and, and gender kind of gender justice related. And the investment community kind of looked around at its data, 
honestly mostly talked to itself and decided that women on corporate boards was a good measure of gender justice. And many investment firms, many asset managers started putting together portfolios that were based on women on corporate boards. What we did uh, at, at the firm that and that created the strategy, the social justice investing strategy that became Addisina, we actually went directly to groups that um, supported survivors of serial sexual harassment at work. Um, these were the people that were coming forward with Me Too allegations. And we asked them, what can investors do to support you? Here's what investors are doing now. What do you think about it? And they said, you know, women on boards are great. That's a great thing. Doesn't really address the core issue, which is serial sexual harassment. What we know is that this is that this is being enabled by a particular corporate practice. And that corporate practice is what they called forced arbitration or basically a system of demanding that employees sign paperwork that says that if they have any complaints against the employer, they won't take the employer to court. They'll go through a private arbitration process. And most employees didn't even realize that this was something they were signing until they were started to get harassed uh, or even abused at work. And they were put into this process where they had to sign non-disclosure agreement. And there's a private judge that's paid for by the firm. And the firm is kind of the, the company's protecting itself, but in protecting itself, it also ends up protecting the harasser. In fact, over 85% of the time, the firms win in forced arbitration proceedings. And so what was happening is that they were like, can you get rid of these horrible forced arbitration clauses for sexual harassment? We looked around, <laughs> talked to the rest of finance, realized we don't have a data, we don't have any data on this. So we actually started to gather the data from the 3,600 publicly traded companies in the United States and checked in to say, where do you stand on this issue? And we did a few things. We became the first investors to incorporate this in a portfolio. We worked with other investors and in social justice movements to gather the data from the 3,600 companies. But as we were gathering the data, we were also working with the companies to dismantle these policies. Um, and we had some really dramatic wins with that as well. So, and we actually were a big piece of, this is like the kind of the most important thing we do is mobilize other investors. So we're the, we go first, there's a big rush to go second in portfolios. So we were the first to say, hey, incorporating this into portfolios matters. So we incorporated it early, showed other investors it was possible and really gave investors what they needed, which was publicly sharing that data set and also acting in a way to, to change the narrative. So we provided thought leadership that was like, hey, me too is about these forced arbitration clauses at public companies, not necessarily about whether or not there are women on the board, which isn't a bad thing. It just doesn't address the problem. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna show my ignorance here, but I have a daughter who's expressed a lot of interest. My oldest daughter has expressed a lot of interest in going into finance and spe specifically into ESG type of finance. And she's asked me about gender lens investing. And when I've explained it to her, it's always been about you know female representation on corporate boards that's like always been kind of my my go-to example i never knew that that this existed and i guess you don't know right i was aware of the research that you know that that boards that had equal representation or better did did better than didn't and that's compelling stuff but there's there's issues that impact people people that are closer to the problem that we usually kind of float above as an industry unless we get down and ask hard questions, right? And that's because we live in segregated society and your neighbor is not one of my family members from Oroville. 
right? The people that you talk to about these things um, and finance are generally other finance folks. And yeah. quite honestly, people who have power, we're investors talking to each other about what we should do about problems that aren't where that are impacting us that are mostly impacting other people like forced arbitration disproportionately impacts women african-american and low-wage workers there's there are studies that you know that that yeah. showed us that so we went and actually talked to those people we you come up with different answers when you talk to those who are most impacted so just to be clear women on corporate boards is important it's something that we look at too but i would never i would never have thought that that was doing something to address the Me Too movement. And what we wanted to really do was have an impact on the underlying issue. And so that's why we gathered a novel data set and mobilized investors to start working on this issue. So on, on your website, I read a piece that was sort of touting some of the success you've had about, about getting rid of these forced arbitration clauses. How, wh what are the specific levers by which that happens? Are you divesting? Are you voting shares? Is it advocacy? Like, how, what levers are you pulling to like make stuff happen? Got Oh, I really appreciate you asking that. So I just want to talk about the traditional levers that are pulled and they are filing shareholder uh, resolutions. So that's a traditional lever that's pulled. You hold the company whose behavior you want to change in your portfolio and you file, file a shareholder resolution, get it on the ballot to advise management. Um, and then also voting on shareholder uh, voting on proposals for shareholders whether they were brought by shareholders or brought by management right at companies that you own and that's really wonderful and admirable but it really limits your impact what it does is it it means that you must own companies in order to impact them and if you recall like our firm set out to make large-scale systemic change and if i were to limit it only to the companies that we hold then there's no way I'm going to make large scale systemic change. Like I cared as much about whether a large oil company ended forced arbitration as, you know, any companies that would actually be in an Adesina portfolio. Yeah. So we had to actually redesign what it meant to have impact. So the idea is like have a rigorously cleaned portfolio. So our portfolio is very rigorously drained. And then when we have issues with portfolio companies, we do call them up. I have to say they, they're pretty responsive to us because someone at those companies or, or some department is really focusing on doing the right thing. If you pass all of our screens and there are many, someone there is focused. But what's more important is standing in our position of power as investors. We realize no one can educate, inform and mobilize investors like another investor, like another investor who said, Hey, listen, we invested based on this particular screen. Look, it's working out well. And here's the business case for addressing this issue in your portfolio. Here's why it actually makes sense to you as an investor. So we are doing something that is really transformational, which is um, doubling down on investor mobilization. So it's not that we don't do portfolio engagement. It's just a different situation when you have a pretty like a highly valued line portfolio. And we do do portfolio engagement. But what's most important that we do is mobilize other investors. So we had to listen to investors and they told us, give us the data, give us the business case and help, you know, change the narrative about it. Because if my clients think I should be only be looking at women on board, so that's the problem too. So what we do is we run certain campaigns and we strategically share certain data sets. Like this forced arbitration data set was uh, our campaign was called Force the Issue. I think the website's still up. I have fun news about the impact there. It's technically obsolete, don't, so don't use this in a live portfolio because no company is allowed to have forced arbitration now. So, but we provided the data 
We let people know we went, you know, we went first, here's our index, here's our portfolio, we're doing just fine. And then we put together um, a collective investor statement that we saw carried forward into shareholder proposals all over public markets that made the business case for why investors want this practice ended. So our investor mobilization efforts are what actually makes large-scale systemic change. And I think that that's us kind of redefining impact. Yeah, this is you. You anticipated one of my questions. This is one of the things that I think is is so different because I think the conversation has always been around, or at least in in my limited understanding, has been around divestment or around sort of voting shares engagement, right? Mm-hmm. But this this mobilization piece, sort of reaching across to other investors who may not even be invested with you, and, and providing them with data points and talking points and access. That allows them to ask for the things that that you want. That's a that's sort of a powerful third way to impact it. I love it. Thank you for saying so. We think it's pretty powerful too. And in the end, we may choose divestment in our own portfolio on some of these egregious issues. We may choose not to invest that way. But we have to, a real large systemic change requires that you have the divestment folks and the engagement folks both at the table. And so if you're providing data. And like the topping point from the business case, you can form these coalitions. One of our largest coalitions is a half trillion, two of them are half trillion dollar coalitions that can work together, the divestment and the engagement people. That's actually the fastest way to get to systems change. Okay. So now let's let's talk about let's talk about making money now. This is someone that something that everyone everyone likes to talk about. There's a school of thought. There's there's a couple of schools of thought, right? There's mm-hmm. one school of thought that says anytime you limit your universe of investable options, you should expect lower returns. Mm-hmm. There's another school of thought to which you adhere, which says that effectively these uh, you know, this social injustice is a form of risk. And these are basically poor business practices that are gonna lead to poor returns. Can you talk about, can you de- defend your case there for why you, you give some examples on your website uh, of why you think that investing alongside social justice movements is not even just, a, not only just an adequate way to invest, but actually a superior way to invest? Absolutely. I love answering this question. It makes me so happy. For some weird reason, there's this prevailing thought that if you are going to have an impact, you will get concessionary returns. And that's just not what we're seeing and not what we believe. Our whole investment thesis is that social justice movements are giving us these early indicators of risk, as you said. So in 2020, we did a couple of studies. Uh, this is the year that Adesina launched. Um, one was on racial justice, one was on climate justice. And just to kind of pull in some data points to share with you, a big issue around racial justice in public markets is, is investment in private prisons that actually make money off of mass incarceration in the United States, which we know has become, has always been racialized. And so there's a couple of private prison companies. One of them is called CoreCivic. And in 2012, this is kind of before the Black Lives Matter protests start, in earnest anyway, but CoreCivic share price is up 74% in a year when the S&P 500 was up 16% overall. Mm. In 2014, the Black Lives Matter work begins and also the Racial Justice Investing Coalition, which we're in leadership on, um, begins. And the Black Lives Matter protest had a particular focus on mass incarceration and lifting up the role of private prisons in perpetuating this. 
2020, we know George Floyd was murdered. 20 million people flood the street. The Black Lives Matter protests are larger than they've ever been with a sustained focus on mass incarceration. And in 2020, Core Civic was down 62% in a year when the S&P 500 was also up 16. So what we see is we're like, oh, wow, we've never had private prisons in our portfolio. And in 2020, we're very happy if you did not. Um, but the social justice movement were giving us very early indicators of that, you know, six years in advance, right? You had these kind of early indicators. In terms of climate justice, um, just look at the difference between 1980 and 2020. In 1980, almost 30% of the S&P 500 was oil and gas, right? Seven of the 10 largest companies in the S&P 500. Of course, we've had so much climate activism in 2014. We had 400,000 people in the People's Climate March in 2019. You have 7.6 million people on a global climate strike. When you get, you know, 20 years later to 2020, and you look at how much of the S&P 500 is with the oil and gas, it's 2.3%. It's actually the smallest component of, right, the S&P 500. And we've since then had a few bumps in oil and gas, but it's never getting back to that 30% ratio there. It's really is becoming a stranded asset. So those are two kind of specific issue examples. But if you just look at the Adafina Social Justice Index performance, you can look at the index. And of course, you can't invest in an index. But if you're just looking at the index, which is uh, kind of proves out our investment thesis, if you compare that to uh, the FTSE Global All Cap, which is a screened, uh, an unscreened, excuse me, um, index, the Adafina uh, Justice Index is it's down 13.62% this year. But when you compare that to the FTSE being down 14.69%, you start to see that there's a difference there. And this has been something that's been consistent over time. And um, if you go back a full year, you know, the, we're looking at negative, you know, 9% versus negative 11%. So, you know, it's been a down market, but we can really see our investment thesis play out the most clearly in uh, risk mitigation, which is more easily seen in these down markets. So to me, it's like, no, you can have tremendous impact and outperform. This is something that is not only possible, but it's happening. You know, it's it makes me think of Dr. King's arc of the moral universe, uh, you know, quote, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And if you're investing, if you're investing in a way that is consistent with the arc of the moral universe bending toward justice, it may take a minute, right? I mean, you're not going to win every year, but I think in the in the long run, uh, you you're going to be on the right side of history, and also and also perhaps enjoy some some nice returns along the way. You know, it I, when you were talking about climate, um, you know, sort of green investments, I thought of you know in the last couple of years, so many let's call them low quality EB type investments sprung up. How do you? What what sort of research do you do on fundamentals? Because I think there's a lot of greenwashing still. There's a lot of sort of nonsense that's masquerading as as you know perhaps something that that is uh, you know masquerading as something that it's not. So in addition to the the heart, right? What about the head? What sort of fundamental research do you do you do to make sure that these businesses are quality businesses? So I'm happy to talk about the fundamental fundamental research for sure. There's a component there, absolutely. But before we even get to the fundamental research, we are using, we are primarily using communities that are giving us data. So we're either working with a partner to create a new data set, 
or we're just sourcing the data directly from that impacted community. Mm. And because of that, um, what it means is I feel like we're fairly insulated from some of the greenwashing issues that come up. Those greenwashing issues come up specifically because finance is talking to itself, figuring out how to how to inexpensively, this is important because no one wants to pay more, how to inexpensively uh, extract some ESG kind of related data from the information they've already gathered from companies often. And that results in, in the greenwashing. If you don't give a firm any more assets, you know, they have to do it at the same price as traditional investing. They're going to, you know, the only way you'll you'll get the green is in the marketing. You won't actually get underlying systems change or a change in the portfolio. So yeah. I believe that because we start out using different data sources, um, that so for example, we get our data on what it means to be in alignment with indigenous peoples' rights directly from first peoples worldwide. Right. We have um, Black Lives Matter, Color of Change, many different you know organizations we're looking to for guidance on how we're addressing um, issues of racial injustice, you know, as well as First Peoples Worldwide. So just starting from that plate, it's harder to end up with greenwashing because we're investing up front and making sure that our primary data sources come directly from the communities most impacted and where they draw the line on these issues for public companies. After we do all of that, though, I have to let you know that we do have a human-powered investable universe review process. And what that means is that we run all the, the companies through our you know, screening system, even if they are screened by, um, by communities. You'll still just have companies that slip through the cracks. And it's really important that you do firsthand research. Sometimes that's country-specific research, like having a researcher in China doing um, whose values aligned and doing research on Chinese companies. And sometimes it's about having U.S. side researchers that know how to dig deeply into ESG issues um, on a company. So it actually takes both. And that's one of the reasons that we've really spoke out this year against what we call cheap ESG or the idea that for the very same price, you can get um, kind of all the ESG you want. Actually, you really do have to do a little bit more work. And if you do quality work, it does have some additional costs. Those costs don't need to be in the stratosphere. Our ETF is 89 basis points, it's, you know, not over 1%, but that's not as low as some of these very large um, ESG funds that are like five basis points. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's been a rough couple of years, I think, from a from a PR perspective for, for, for ESG, I think there's been some really pretty vitriolic is the word attacks against ESG. Which of those critiques are fair? I mean, I guess you, you touched on a bit in that last piece, right? Is is it being more of a marketing effort than a grassroots movement? Is there are there any other critiques of ESG writ large that you think are fair? And if someone is trying to sort of separate the the wheat from the chaff, how can they tell what's real ESG? What do you look for in a real ESG provider? And and when do you know you're being marketed to? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. I do think some of the greenwashing is a fair critique. We've seen it a lot, you know, where, where maybe you have a gender lens fund that also has weapons in it. And it's like, real, you know, is that really a values aligned portfolio? Um, it ultimately, like, what are the investors or those most impacted? Like, what do they care about? They probably don't want weapons in their fund. Um, what I think investors can do, 
um, we wrote about this in an article about uh, like the three questions investors with social justice values should ask. And I believe that um, the, the most important things are to ask, what are the issues? How are they being measured? And who is determining impact? So just really briefly, what are the issues that you can just read that from the basic description and write in a perspective? Is the issue, like if you're investing in a fund, is the issue only environmental or are they looking beyond that? Is it actually racial, gender, economic, climate justice focused? If you have social justice values, you probably care about a combination of them. Uh, the second question I said is, how are the issues being measured? This was classic with forced arbitration, right? They Investors measuring it, measuring how to address this issue. Well, we're going to measure it based on how many women are in corporate boards, even though that had very little to do with whether or not the company had forced arbitration policies. Actually, often the companies with women on the boards would also have forced arbitration policies in place. So it's really important to say, great, you've identified that gender justice is an issue. It's not just um, environmental, but like, are you really measuring that in the right way? And the way to get that, to get on point with that, with um, making sure you're measuring things correctly, is to make sure that those who are determining impact are closer to the problem. That's the number one way you're going to find out. If your fund manager, for example, really is uh, the real deal or not, like who told you to measure it that way? Finance spends way too much time talking to itself. If your manager isn't finding a way to connect with the movements that you're following, if you're, you know, if you're like a retail investor, then, you know, there's probably some things they're going to miss. So I think that in our case, Adesina really put those most impacted. Not only are we listening to them, we actually, they have a, an official position. We have a stewardship circle that has, um, that provides accountability to our portfolio management team. And these are um, individuals that are both part of social justice movements and have deep acumen in finance and specifically public markets. And they are one of many accountability mechanisms that we have. So that's maybe a fourth bonus question. Like, what accountability mechanism do you have? And I can say that finance mostly doesn't have any yeah. accountability mechanisms. We're not good at creating. <laughs> <laughs> no, those are great. Uh, those are great questions. I love that as sort of a, a rubric for thinking about the, the type of ESG you're getting. Now, final question for you before we tell people where they can find out more about you. I wouldn't be doing my job if we didn't talk about the behavioral piece a little bit. Uh, in 2017, I wrote a piece for Green Money Journal talking about my purely hypothesized uh, benefits of, I mean, I'll, I'll just be straight up with you. I, I was talking about purely from sort of a hypothetical perspective about the, the benefits of values-based investing on, on behavior. Because one of the things that we see when people misbehave is that they treat their holdings like a video game or something like they treat it as sort of an up and down that's disconnected from the reality that equity is fractional ownership in a company. And I think what you're doing brings that right to the forefront. Like this is, this is, you are part owner of a business, that business, the decisions that business make impact the environment, they impact people, they impact marginalized people. And I think you're reifying it a bit. You're making it more real or more concrete. So I hypothesize that there are potentially positive behavioral benefits to investing in a way uh, that's linked to your values. I'm just curious what you've seen or read on this topic. So for us, we really look at the wider industry that we're part of. And up through two, three, you know, ESG ETFs, you know, had overall decreases in assets of about 16.5%. 
But when you're looking at that same period of time, you know, JSTC, which is Addison and ETF, had net inflows of 36%. This is important for behavioral finance because what it's showing is that when people feel like they're really a part of something that has true impact, that even in down markets, the impact return to something advisors I know really care about, that impact return is more important to them. Of course, you know, we're also experiencing outperformance as well, which always helps. But that impact return is something that I really think can help people stay the course um, when they can see real changes happening. I mean, this year, forced arbitration for sexual harassment was outlawed. It's the law of the land that you can't do it, whether you're a public or private company. And Adesina led the investor call for that and consulted at the highest level of policymaking in order to ensure that that happened. People know that when they invest with us, they're making real change like that. And I believe that it helps them to stay the course. And uh, especially as criticisms of, you know, ESG are, you know, are increasing. I think that ensuring that you're investing with the real deal of people that are actually making systemic change, you know, is something that helps you stay the course long term. Yeah. Well, Rachel, you are definitely the real deal. It was an honor to have you on the show. Uh, thank you for dropping so much knowledge today. If people want to learn more about you, about your work, about the Social Justice Index, about Adesina, where can they find more information? Well, the easiest way is that people can text the word justice to 55444. If they do that, then uh, they'll get contacted just to sign up for our Adesina newsletter. You can also go to our website, adesina.com. If you're a financial professional, that's where you can find a lot of those data sets I've been telling you about that we share with the industry. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here. I learned a ton. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.